morning, Emmaus. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Matthew Barrett. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus. And you can see all of those lovely, bright smiles running away. Uh, if, if you have uh, children, you are more than welcome to explore um, the classes and the teaching that they're up to. Uh, what a delight to see uh, so many of them. Amen? So many children. Uh, we have a few announcements before we get started. Uh, in two weeks, I believe, September 15th, September 10th, September 10th, not great at announcements, I will, I will be honest with you, uh, September 10th, we have our next members meeting. It's going to be, I, I am so looking forward to it, not only because we have some baptisms, but we also have some new members. Uh, it's a time for us to see the great do you think of members' meetings this way? I know sometimes there's this impression that this is boring and business and whatnot, and yeah, we have to talk about that too, but, but do you look forward to them as a covenant member here at Emmaus as if this is an opportunity to see what God's been up to? What has God been doing in the lives of the people here that we would have baptisms and new members come and covenant with us? So please come to that. Uh, as of soon, today... We will also have the descriptions, uh, of the testimonies for those who are becoming members of Emmaus. Those will go up online. Please make sure to read those and uh, to uh, get to know those people so that you are ready to come to the members' meeting. We also have another announcement. There you are. Come. Hi. Good morning. Um, I am Tabitha. I'm one of the deacons of kids here at Emmaus, and I just wanted to share with you some numbers today. Um, I know that's not exciting for a lot of people, but just hear me out. So as you saw, a lot of kids left. That's not all of them. There's tons of kids upstairs as well. Um, every week, we've been running 80 to 85 kids in Emmaus Kids. That's a lot of kids, um, way more than we even had last year. So we are just going to throw these numbers out there and just let you ponder on them. Um, so we need 14 people each week to run Emmaus Kids. We would love to have at least 17 people every week to safely run Emmaus Kids. Um, these, this theater and this theater over here run around 25 kids each week. Um, with just two adults in there, it's kind of insane. Um, and the same thing upstairs, we're running in the teens in some of those rooms. And if you've seen those rooms, they are not huge. So when you have two adults with 15 kids, that's a lot. So what we're asking is if you do not serve in Emmaus Kids, you serve in another area, we're asking for you to commit to serving six times a year in Emmaus Kids. If, ever, if 10 people served six times a year in Emmaus Kids, you would only miss service six times, um, and that would just greatly bless Emmaus and Emmaus kids. Um, so if you would be interested in doing that, you can email kids at EmmausKC.com, or you can let me or Patrick Schreiner know, and we can get you plugged in. So just six times a year, you can commit to that. That would really help our church and our families and our kids to safely have time outside of here so that you can enjoy your time in here. Um, so if you would like to do that, just let us know. Thank you. 
Well, please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 18. And as you turn there, uh, have in mind that we will float around from chapter 16 through 19. Well, if you know me or my family, then you know that I just have to confess, I love books. I get the feeling that there's some of you here who can resonate with me. My wife, Elizabeth, uh, homeschools, and at the end of each year, we take our kids to Barnes & Noble, and we tell them, you can pick out a book. Go, and, and they start running through the aisles looking for that one book, that one special book that's going to start their summer. It's exciting. In fact, I skip work so that I can tag along, and I insist I get a book too. I get to pick one out too. I am a bit of a kid that way. Uh, This past June came, and there was uh, my little Lorelei. Now, she was tagging along on my coat, and I was busy. I, I, I get lost in books, and I'm busy, just lost, taking one off the shelf, one novel after another. And she's like, Dad... Dad, and, and, and eventually I turn around, she's like, Daddy, this is wrong, right? I wasn't looking. I, I was lost in the books, and I heard that and immediately turned around. And there she is standing next to a table of books designed for her age, maybe a little older, but she's pointing to a life-size 3D cutout of two teenage boys kissing each other with hearts floating over their heads. You've been there, parents? I will be very transparent with you. I was caught off guard. It's not that we as a family haven't discussed Pride Month. Uh, We have. But this this felt different, felt very different. Over the years, we've communicated with our kids that the bookstore is a a happy place. It's a place of adventure, a a place where they can enjoy so much. And so when she entered into this bookstore and then saw them celebrating these two teenage boys expressing their choice, Lorelai understandably felt confused. What am I to make of this? In that moment, so much came over me. My daughter's confusion, which just broke my heart. The inescapable advertisement. And then the people that were right there, standing there, watching, wondering what I was going to (laughs) say. I felt overwhelmed. All the preparation, all the learning, suddenly, I, where, where did it go? As I'm looking at my, my little girl, trying to find the words, what do I say? My point in bringing this up and this story is not to enter into a 40-minute uh, discussion of that issue. Uh, but I do want to say this. 
At Emmaus, we often talk about how we are a community who believes in a creed. Friends, let's be honest. The modern, even postmodern world that we live in has a creed too. Don't fool yourself. It's a creed by which they live, by which they preach. They too have a liturgy that runs and regulates their life. Many have called this creed expressive individualism. Uh, Carl Truman, who's thought long and hard about this, describes it this way. He says, the real me is that person who dwells inside my body, and thus I am most truly myself when I'm able to act outwardly in accordance with those inner feelings. When people identify themselves by their desires, sexual or otherwise, they are expressive individuals. Expressive individualism is correct in seeing our inner lives, our feelings, our emotions as important to who we are. Where it errs, however, is it grants an overwhelming authority to those feelings. And it sees the subsequent outward expression of those feelings as that which makes us authentic. Do you see how unique, how radically different you are as a church? We live in a culture that says, you make your own liturgy. You decide who you will be according to your own feelings. You are your own creed. And here we are as a church saying, you are not the center. I am not the center either. You and I, we have one creed. And God is at the center of it all. Brothers and sisters, your pastors here at Emmaus, we know how overwhelming things can be. We're not blind. Over the next year, we will devote three different, throughout the whole year, scattered throughout three different sermon series, but all based on a confession that we have written, we have been praying over, we have been chewing on, for many Christians today, a confession is a mere box that you just check off on your way into membership. But then you put it behind to get to the real stuff of ministry, the real stuff of the Christian life. That mindset is so contrary. It is so contrary to the Bible. Doctrine fuels discipleship. And without doctrine, we have no doxology. Maybe we could switch vocabulary to the vocabulary that Pastor Tyler's been using these past couple of weeks. Without a creed, you have no community, let alone a commission that we can give with authority. And so this confession is it's designed, let me, let me switch metaphors again on you, it's designed to be a rich soil in the ground. 
a soil that helps you, listen to me here, this is critical for the next year. It's a soil that is meant to help you grow as a covenant member. And I do not mean just when you come to Emmaus for the first time. I'm talking about you as a covenant member now, tomorrow, and for however long the Lord should have you. There's a lot of growing that we have ahead of us. If you have ever thought to yourself, why? Man, this is so weird, right? Why do they love theology so much? It keeps coming up all the time. Well, I don't know what answer to give you that's better than Psalm 27, when David says he's got one single passion above all else, one driving desire. Here it is. This is all your pastors of Emmaus have for you. <laughs> to gaze at the beauty of the Lord. set your gaze Godward then, you need to know from the start who God is, in part because God's people, as the history of Israel has demonstrated over and over, well, we have a tendency to limp, to limp between the Creator and the God we make in our own image. as if we can have both. Look with me at 1 Kings 18. I'm going to go back to chapter 16 just for a second. Across the Old Testament, Israel is drawn away from God by the nation's gods. What makes 1 Kings so painful is that Israel's own king has been substituted for a forgery. 1 Kings 16.30 says that Ahab, the king of Israel, did evil in the sight of the Lord. How bad was it? Well, by taking Jezebel as his wife, Jezebel then led Ahab and Israel with her to worship the God so foreign to the people of Israel, Baal. But Jezebel did not merely worship Baal instead of Yahweh. She was hostile to Israel's true God. She hunted down the prophets of God, slaughtered them. Those that escaped hid themselves away in caves. How serious then was Ahab's turn to idolatry? Verse 33 of chapter 16, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings who were before him. In judgment, the Lord withheld rain from the land, creating drought and famine. Not even, the text says, not even dew could be found on the grass in the morning. That's how bad things were. And yet the people persist in worshiping Baal. How appropriate then for the Lord himself to summon Elijah, the prophet of God, and call a match. 
Is this drought God's doing? Is it a sign of His judgment? If God shows Himself, then Israel will know once and for all. But His opponent is not to be underestimated. After all, Baal is supposed to be the god of the storm, commanding the sky, moving lightning bolts. But if he is, then why not see which god can throw lightning from the heaven? Look at 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 through 30. I'm not going to read it, but I want you to look there. An altar is erected, and a bull is sacrificed and placed on top. Whoever's god sends fire to consume the sacrifice, the text says, he is god. So, the prophets of Baal were told around 450 in number. They cry out, Oh, Baal, answer us! And morning to noon passes by. No answer. The silence, the silence of Baal speaks volumes. Notice what's insinuated. If he is not answering, then it must be due to some limitation on his part, which leads Elijah to describe him much like a man who's confined by a body or passions. Perhaps Baal is unable to hear the prophets because he's lost in some other conversation. He can't hear your prayers and petitions when he's busy answering someone else's. Perhaps Baal is unable to attend to the cries of his prophets because he's in the bathroom. He had too much to eat and drink the night before like a bad hangover. Or he's got the flu. Perhaps Baal is just gone. We don't know where he is. He's unable to hear his prophets because he cannot be everywhere. Limited as he is by time and space. Or, or perhaps, perhaps Baal is asleep. As if he needs rest. He's tired. To make matters worse, he appears to be a God who can change. Look, look there with me. Notice, notice how violent this gets. Is this God all an emotional God who is capable of being manipulated if only his prophets cut themselves enough, if enough blood begins to pool and flow down this mountain? in order to get his attention, in order to move him to action, to, to create and galvanize, to, to move him from indifference to sympathy and empathy, to awake him from his slumber. Whatever the reason, Elijah's sarcasm is pointed, isn't it? Because... His mocking conveys that Baal is merely a superior version of man. 
Is this not the very definition of an idol? A God made in our own image. It never ceases to surprise me, though, how many modern men speak of the Christian God like this. Oh, yes, we want to remain theists, but the deity we have in mind is and sounds and seems to at least be inferred a, a person like us. He may be bigger in size, no doubt, but he nevertheless exists on the same plane as us. He's moved by others. He is a God who is constantly fluctuating, a God who is becoming something more, something less. He lacks sufficiency, emotionally vulnerable, so that he is affected by the assaults of others. He's reactionary, so needy and capricious that he depends on us to then somehow contribute to his divine knowledge, his plan, his power. This God is a perfect fit, isn't it? It's a perfect fit for the expressive individualism of our day. A God who is very much moved by our ever-changing feelings, a God who is conditioned upon my ever-fluctuating choice of identity. Here is a God who is constituted by us, a God we have domesticated so that we no longer fear in his presence, but feel quite safe and comfortable. You open the Bible, how different is our God? While Baal is on the toilet, passed out on his bed, our God is a consuming fire. He is jealous for his own glory. Look at 1 Kings 18. Look at verses 30 through 40. Elijah calls on God, and this God throws fireballs down from heaven, consuming not only the sacrifice drenched in water, but licking up, the text says, licking up the very dust itself around and beyond the sacrifice. In the trench. I don't think the message here is that God is the biggest of many gods, including Baal. That would defeat the point. God does not exist on the same plane as his creation. Now, the point of the narrative is to prove that Yahweh alone is the true God. Let there be no mistake. Let me clarify this in our minds. This is the difference between true worship and idolatry. This is the God who created the heavens and the earth. A holy God who judges with righteousness. This is going to make you uncomfortable. Judges with righteousness his own people. When they have exchanged the glory of the immortal one for images of man. There's something though I you're gonna notice. He is also 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has not forgotten his people, but he is the Almighty One who keeps covenant promise. Among the many questions, and, and we don't have time, I mean, there's so much we could explore here, but we don't have time. The many questions that come up from this text, one at least rises to the surface. Why is the Lord so different from Baal? Now, again, we would need days. We would need weeks, years perhaps, to travel through the Scriptures to answer this question. But allow me to capture what the Scriptures tell us just briefly. Number one, our God is infinite. Our God is infinite. Elijah's sarcasm is hilarious. It's tragic, but it's hilarious because the prophet is saying, your God is too small. Now here, we could easily misstep. We have to be very careful right at this point. As if we just need a bigger version of Baal. But God is not merely unlimited in size. No, he is unlimited in essence. He's altogether different, a different being than us. There's no comparison. We can all picture a, a fire so big that it, it can't be put out, or a tree so tall we can't see the top, or an ocean that's so vast we can never get to the bottom. But with all of these examples, we're still talking about things and objects that can be measured. However incapable we or you or I might be of doing that. Here's the difference with God. He has no material form. And therefore, he is without measure. The category does not even apply to him. The medieval theologian Anselm, one of my favorites, famously said this, God is something than which nothing greater can be thought. You see, whatever divine perfections we describe, we must keep in mind God is that perfection infinite. So that any limitation must be precluded from this God. God's infinite nature is the bedrock of his incomprehensibility. To comprehend is to contain something. But if God is unbounded in the fullness of his infinite life, then no finite creature can comprehend him. Let's not be so arrogant. We have to be humble at this point. For the, it, the finite cannot contain the infinite incomprehensibility does not mean that if you just had more information, then you would comprehend God. No. Even that which you do know of God is incomprehensible. We may know this God truly, absolutely, but never exhaustively. We may apprehend this God by means of his wondrous words and works, but we can never comprehend his essence. We might have better luck walking on the surface of the sun. Number two, our God is life in and of himself. As for you and me, we live and move and have our being only insofar as we participate in this God. He's our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer. But as for God, he receives his life from no one, no thing. He is the fullness of life in himself. 
which means he is self-existent. We depend on God to exist. This is why Christianity has to be characterized by humility. Has to. We depend on him in every way. But he exists by nature. The one cause who is himself uncaused. We call this, per- this perfection God's aseity from the Latin, ase. He is of himself. Aseity not only means God is self-existent, but self-sufficient. Let me ask you, what was God doing before he created the world? Christians sometimes give the impression that God was lonely. You heard this? So, he created us so that he would be fulfilled. Or not so unfulfilled. But what does that imply? It implies that God was deficient apart from creation. And if he's deficient, he cannot be the perfect being. Last year, we were working our way through the book of Acts. And you may remember that pivotal moment when Paul enters Athens and talks philosophy on Mars Hill. Before Paul can describe God as Savior, he first must establish God as Creator. But not just any Creator. Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, everything. Society is so important, isn't it? So important. Because without it, God cannot give so freely. He alone is supremely generous. Because he does not act for his own benefit, but simply to give of his goodness. Says Thomas Aquinas. Number three, our God is. If God is infinite life in and of himself, then nothing precedes him. And I mean nothing. As if there were parts of divinity somewhere, somehow, that somehow come together to make up God. No, God is simple. And by simple, we don't mean he's easy to understand. We don't mean that he's superficial or basic. Rather, we mean God is without parts. Isn't that what makes Elijah's sarcasm so hilarious? but all has parts. But our God is not composed like that. All that is in God is God. Period. You and I, just to give one example, you and I, well, we must acquire love. In fact, that's what we're spending our whole life trying to do. Acquire love. Love, so that we're more loving today than we were yesterday. Not so with God. Remember what John says in his first letter? God is love. He is love by nature, not by participating in some other, better, greater source of love. And so, down through the ages, a church father like Augustine could say, We're really precise. God has no properties. He is pure essence. Properties neither differ from his essence, nor do they materially 
differ from each other. That is a very sophisticated way of saying what Deuteronomy says. the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Number four, our God does not change. My, my son, Charlie, if I can, is a pastor. I get to take this, this prerogative. I'm sorry. But I'm going to brag on my son, Charlie, for a minute. He placed fourth in all of North Kansas City for the breaststroke. Now, you can imagine how much work, dad knows, <laughs> how much work went into that, that goal. When Charlie was tired in the middle of the season, coach, mom, mom was critical, dad a little bit too, had to push him to achieve the potential that we saw in him. We knew it was there, but, but needed to be, it needed to be activated. It needed to be perfected to reach its fulfillment. Anything less, and we just knew Charlie would not, in the end, be, be fulfilled. He would be incomplete. The point is this. As a creature, we always have the potential to change if something or someone moves us. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. But imagine if this were true of God. He would either change for the good or for the worse. If for better, then what would that mean? That would mean something in him was deficient before. And if for the worse, then something was perfect in him, but it's now deficient. But our God, well, our God is perfection. He is the perfection of life of himself. And if so, then he has no potential. He is a phrase that many down through history have used to, as a church to communicate this very deep, mysterious truth. He is pure act. Meaning, he is so infinitely alive. You notice Elijah? Where is he? Is Baal sleeping? He's tired? Meanwhile, Yahweh is so infinitely alive, so maximally complete in the abundance of its everlasting life that nothing in God needs to be activated so that he can reach his potential or fulfillment or completion. He alone is the unmoved mover, though he moves all things. He alone does not change, though he changes all things. He alone obtains nothing new, though he makes all things. He is being, but never a being who's becoming. In a word, he is mutable. Now, believe it or not, we have only touched the very tip of this iceberg. If we had time, we could explore countless other perfections. For our God is impassable, eternal omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, all-wise. I could go on. And you may want to go and dig through the archives. We, years ago, preached a sermons through the attributes of God. But I end with this one. Number five, our God is holy love. I want you to look back at 1 Kings 18. 
this summer, I traveled to Israel with some of my colleagues at Midwestern Baptist Seminary, and we had the opportunity to visit Mount Carmel. And we got there, very hot day, off the bus, and we looked out from this mountain. And I thought to myself, wow, this is, this is it. This is where it happened. But then, it's so high that I looked out over and across the valley and remembered what happened next. Look at 1 Kings 18, verse 44. Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. Verse 45, and in a little while the heavens grew black and the clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. After justice comes mercy. The drought is over. But that's not the, the only thing. That's, that's just the beginning of God's love. Skip ahead. Look at 1 Kings 19. Jezebel hears about what's happened. She hears Elijah's put to death the prophets of Baal, and she's hunting for him. And the text says Elijah was so afraid, he runs for his life until he reaches the wilderness and he, collapse, he collapses in exhaustion and, no doubt, defeat. Asking God, look at verses 3 and 4, asking God if he can die. Why? After everything that's happened, why? He feels, notice what he says, he feels like he is no better than all the prophets who come before him. God is jealous for his own glory. And so Elijah has been jealous too. He called down fire from heaven. He put to death the prophets of Baal. And Israel has not changed a bit. The covenant, where is it? It hasn't been renewed. But God meets Elijah in the wilderness. And two times he sends angels to provide him with food and water, strength and refreshment. And nourished by the Lord, Elijah, he spends 40, does this sound familiar? 40 days and 40 nights traveling to the mountain of God. The mountain where God appeared to Moses and later gave his covenant to Israel. The symbolism should be plain. All this time, God has called on Elijah to be the new Moses. And like Moses, Elijah will now have a tense but very transparent conversation with God on the mountain. And Elijah comes back to his defense. I've been jealous for you, Lord. I am the only one left. I've often thought that in this moment, God, the God who brought down fire from heaven, might appear to Elijah with a fiery zeal once more. That's not exactly what happens, is it? Look at verse 11. Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. 
after the fire, sound, low, whisper. Friends, God, He is so holy. He is so set apart as the eternal, the, the brilliant blaze of His infinite perfection. It cannot be contained. And after licking up the iniquity of his people, his consuming righteousness is now further exhibited, how? In a storm, an earthquake, and a fire. And yet after all of this noise, there is silence. God's prophet is depressed. He wants to die. So God, in this silence, stoops down so low as to whisper to his prophet. He speaks soft, gentle words. Words of healing. Words of restoration. Isn't this how the Word of God works? Do you see the beauty of our Lord? Justice, mercy, they kiss. Holiness and love embrace. I love what one individual has said. Lifted out of despair, Elijah must now reassess his theology. You read on, God tells Elijah to get up. And go on and anoint a king over Syria, a king over Israel, and a prophet, Elisha. One to whom Elijah can then pass on the baton. These kings and prophets will restore justice and true worship in the land by the sword. And God will raise up his people once more. And clearly, such love is not due to Israel's faithfulness. Out of all texts in the Bible, it should be clear here, but it's due to a God who is so eternal, he has a chosen remnant that he is prepared before the foundation of the world. 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to all. And in a whisper, Elijah has encountered the love a love so eternal, so powerful, so holy, so unconditional, that after all of Israel's idolatry, God will still renew His covenant. After judgment comes redemption. What do these perfections and attributes of God mean for us as a church? What do they mean for your Christian life? May us, as we close, imagine a world in which the knowledge of God transforms how you live. Let's start with commission. I think we often are overwhelmed by the daunting task of taking the gospel to our neighbors and others outside these doors. Last week, Pastor Tyler called on you to think of 
a person, just maybe one person in Kansas City that you could talk to about Jesus, about the good news. That's a responsibility we need to take seriously. That was not just a sermon. That is part of the DNA of this church. But friends, I know you feel overwhelmed. I feel it too. I am not good at at talking to strangers, or even friends for that matter. (laughs) I could end the sentence there. I know the gospel. I struggle myself to talk to someone who does not know it. I feel your pain. But let me just remind you, when you are feeling overwhelmed, that responsibility starts in these doors. The children you parent, the children you teach upstairs right now, they need Jesus. They need Jesus. But if God, hear me carefully here, okay? Let's connect the dots between who God is and what we're doing right now. If God is not the abundance of infinite life in and of himself, we have no confidence that we can extend to those little children the gift of eternal life. John 3.16 means nothing. Nothing. If God is not infinite, if he is not a God of absolute aseity, He is not a God without measure. The fountain of blessedness of himself. You cannot look those children in the eyes and say to them, behold Jesus, run to him because in his arms you will never perish. You will experience the fullness of everlasting life. You want to be able to say those words? You better know who God is. What about community, Edimaeus? It's not lost on your pastors that community is also hard. I am not very good at that either. It's hard. Don't let anyone tell you different. You go to your community groups, and it feels sometimes like an elephant is standing on top of your chest. Because you're trying to share your affliction. You're trying to share your sin. Your despair. Anyone feel like Elijah? You want to die? I can tell you to Emmaus, you're welcome. We want to know that. Let me just speak on behalf of the pastors. We see you. We see you. You have a body that is failing and it may not get better. We see you. You have a marriage that feels broken, hopeless. We see you. You've been hurt by the cruel, destructive words of other Christians. My friend, we have, you have such a mighty fortress, if only you could see it. Why? Because our God He is simple. He will never 
fall apart on you. Never. He is immutable. He will not go back on his promise to you. Where does your help come from, Emmaus? Your help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. What about creed? Sometimes those who believe in creeds get the reputation of being so glum. If that is you, maybe we've all been guilty of this, right? If that is you, do you know the one in whom you believe? The one who you confess? One reason Emmaus is Emmaus, I think we actually talked about this this weekend as elders when we got together. Because we believe in liturgy. This, is, this just doesn't happen by accident. From confession to preaching to the Lord's table itself. This is not random. Though we may come into this room with our heads low, we always leave with our heads high. Why though? Why? Because we not only believe in the gospel, but we believe in the God of the gospel. You see the difference? He is a God whose love is so holy that we condemned sinners have been justified by the one who is justice himself. How great, how, how marvelous, how abundant is the Father's love for you that he would send his only begotten son to exchange your guilt for his son's perfect righteousness. How can we not leave these doors brimming with joy? Why do we love theology so much at Emmaus? Because he first loved us. Let's pray. Lord, we are so weak. I am so weak. How often, Lord, we feel like despairing. We feel like there is no hope. We forget your covenant. And Lord, most importantly, we forget who you are. Lord, as we begin this adventure, interspersed throughout the next year, help us to remember who you are so that we may love and embrace the great things you have done. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. David said,